Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to the John Campia podcast, special one here on this Saturday. Of course, I'm your host, John Campia. And what I like to do on the John Campia podcast is basically interact with your guys' thoughts, your opinions, and the questions that you guys send in. Now, how do you get a question or a topic or an opinion on the John Campia podcast? It's simple. Just email me anytime at the John Campia podcast at gmail.com. Do me a favor though, guys. Keep this in mind. Keep the emails short. When they're too long, I just have to skip by them. So try to keep them relatively short and get right to the point. Also, make sure you're following me on social media on Facebook and Twitter and follow me there at John Campia. I sometimes go to my social media and ask for you guys to send me topics and questions there. And that's how we get them in. Now, with all that out of the way, Spider-Man Homecoming is now in theaters across the nation. We got a Spider-Man topic or two on the list here today. I've seen it a couple times now. Really enjoy the film. Still in my top 10 films or at least top five films of the year so far list. I want to know where does it rank with you if you've seen it already. All right. Now, with all that out of the way, let's jump into the first question today. And the first question today comes to us from Miljan Tanik, who writes... We've just got Peter Parker as Spider-Man in the MCU, but many people have been clamoring for years, wanting to see a movie version of Miles Morales. Now, since Sony is making their own Spider-Verse, and since I really can't imagine Spider-Man villains in their own movies without any trace of Spider-Man, it would be bonkers, is it feasible that Sony makes their own Spider-Man with Miles Morales? Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, Miles Morales is another character who takes on the mantle of Spider-Man. Peter Parker in one universe within the comics, and in the comics there's always tons of universes. In one universe, Peter Parker dies, this young kid, Miles Morales, takes up the mantle of Spider-Man, and he becomes Spider-Man. Now, he's been Spider-Man in a couple of comic runs. He's, I believe there's also an animated show that used him as Spider-Man for a while. So... You've often hear some questions sometimes, do you think they'll use Miles Morales as Spider-Man? Now, one thing I can tell you is that Sony is already in the planning stages, and they might even be in pre-production or production by now, of an animated Spider-Man movie that will feature Miles Morales as Spider-Man. So that's kind of interesting. Now, with this whole other Sony world, if you will, where they're doing a Black Cat and Silver Sable movie and they're doing a standalone Venom movie with Tom Hardy playing Venom, I once thought that maybe this is a way that Sony will have their own Spider-Man universe without Tom Hardy, without Peter Parker, and in that universe where Tom Hardy's Venom is, I mean, without Tom Holland, I meant... So in that universe with Tom Hardy as Venom, maybe what they'll do is have a Miles Morales Spider-Man since Peter Parker is going to be in the MCU. That's what I once thought. I, that, I, I remember back when I was still working at Collider and I was on a movie talk, I mentioned that a couple of times, that maybe that's what Sony is kind of lining up. However, recent comments from Kevin Feige and Amy Pascal have led me to believe that that's not the case. Now, the most recent comments from Pascal, which Feige has backed up, has led many people, including myself, to believe, okay, what they're doing with the Sony world, if you will, where Venom, his movies are going to be, and where Black Cat and, uh, and Silver Sable are going to be, is that those are the same world as the MCU. It's the same world. It's just that 
other than Spider-Man, Peter Parker's Spider-Man, you're not going to see MCU characters cross over into those Sony movies. And I think for the most part, you're not going to see those Sony characters cross over into MCU movies. Like you're not going to see Venom in Avengers. You're not going to see Venom and Tom Hardy's Venom pop up in an MCU movie. The best way to illustrate it is to think of the Netflix Marvel shows. So Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, Daredevil. Those shows exist in the same world as the MCU. Every once in a while in those shows, you'll hear like vague and light references to the events that happen in the MCU. Very small, very vague, but they're there. Clearly, those shows exist in the same world as the MCU. However, they never cross over. You're never going to see Iron Man pop up in Luke Cage. You're never going to see Daredevil appear in, I don't know, in an Ant-Man movie. They exist in the same world, but they do not cross over. So they're in the same world, but they're separate from each other. And the latest comments from Amy Pascal and Kevin Feige have led me to believe that that's exactly what Sony is going to be doing with their movies, with the Venom movie, with Silver Sable, maybe at some point a Craven the Hunter movie. I don't know. Because one of the other comments that Amy Pascal has made is that you might see Tom Holland, Spider-Man, Peter Parker, Spider-Man pop up in those other movies. She said as much. So, yeah, I don't think they're going to go with uh, Miles Morales. And as far as what you mentioned in your email, that so many people have been clamoring for a Miles Morales movie. No, they haven't. I mean, it's important for us to understand, like maybe you and all of your friends and everybody you know, but we have to remember that. Those of us who are plugged into the comics and plugged into like the geek sphere and stuff like that, we represent a small minority of the movie going audience. And if I walk over to the Burbank AMC 16 right now and do a quick survey of a thousand people coming out of theater and ask them, do you know who Miles Morales is in? Maybe 20 or 30 of them might know to the average moviegoer, Spider-Man is Peter Parker. That's who they know as Spider-Man. And and I think that's the way they're going to keep it. Now, I think Sony is going to start dipping their toes in the water. Like I said, they're doing this animated film where they're going to have Miles Morales, and that's great. But I really don't think it's going to be much more beyond that. All right. Thanks a lot for the question, man. Let's move in. But then again, who knows? Anything can happen in a world with Amy Pascal Anything can happen at any time. All right, let's move on to the next question. And the next question comes to us from Philip Jacobson, who writes, Hey, John, loving the new channel and content. Thank you very much, Philip. My question is regarding the comedy genre. Is the pure comedy genre dead? I remember back in the 90s and the early 2000s feeling like there was a stream of gut-busting comedies released every year. Now I struggle to name a handful of comedies from the last 7 to 10 years that have come close to the comedies of the 90s and early 2000s. Man, you are not wrong. I mean, the last couple of years, it's been struggling to really pick out really top-notch, high-quality, pure comedies like the 21 and 22 Jump Street films. Those would be a couple of the last couple of years that has really hit. But then you get movies like The House. That's out in theaters right now. We'll probably be in theaters for another 15 minutes. Um, that really disappoint. Trainwreck was another really good one, as a matter of fact. There, there have been a few, but it seems like there aren't a lot. But I really think the key to your question is when you mention the pure comedy genre, like movies that are just purely comedies. And because I think the reason we're seeing less and less of those really memorable pure comedies is because a lot of the best comedies lately seem to have been 
cross-genre comedies. Like, take, I think, the best comedy in theaters right now, The Big Sick. That movie is freaking hilarious. I love The Big Sick. It's tied for my number two favorite film of the year right now. But it's not a pure comedy. It is a slash. It is a comedy slash drama, or really a drama slash comedy. It's a biopic, too, kind of thrown in there. It's Camille's like biopic in many ways. So I think what you see is a lot of great comedies these days. It seems like the studios are trying more to put out comedies that are slash something else, comedy slash something else at the same time. And we're seeing a good number of those come out, and we're seeing a number of them that are really fun and really great. I mean, Baby Driver lists itself as a comedy, which at first I thought was dumb, but then I thought about it. It's like, you know what? There's a number of really good laughs in Baby Driver. So yeah, it's a slash. It's a comedy slash something else or an action slash comedy, whichever one you want to prefer. There are a number of those. And I just feel like right now, the trend seems to be the slash genres, the comedy slash something else. Now, every once in a while, you'll get to This is the End, which is a pure comedy, and I love that movie, or 21 Jump Street. They just tried Baywatch, but that sucked ass. Um, you're going to see them still trying them, but I think for the next little while, you're going to see the best comedies will probably be those slash ones, the ones that are comedies mixed with something else. Now, everything in Hollywood and all of pop culture is you know, cyclical. I mean, it, it, everything moves in cycles, right? So at some point... The pure comedies are going to come back. They're going to try more of those and do more of those. And all it takes is going to take a couple of big hits. And then you're going to see a, just a big glut of them come out. And then they're going to die off. And you'll see comedies mixed with other genres again. And it'll go up and down. And that is the nature of the movie business. But good observation on your part, man. All right, let's move on to the next question. And the next question comes to us from Rondale Williams, who writes... Do you think Spider-Man Homecoming will out-earn Wonder Woman at the box office this weekend? Why or why not? Yeah, it's a fair question, man. Um, I, yeah, I do think Spider-Man Homecoming will outgross the opening weekend of Wonder Woman. Now, Wonder Woman made, I believe, $103 million on its opening weekend, 103, 108. It's, it's in that neighborhood somewhere. 100 and single digit somewhere in there. Uh, which was a great, I think a great opening for Wonder Woman. Uh, especially when you consider that the uphill battle it had to fight to get there. Will Spider-Man Homecoming beat it? Yeah, I do. I think so. For a couple of reasons. Number one, we already have a little bit of empirical data. Thursday night, and I talked about this on the movie blog video I put up, a uh, movie blog video I put up yesterday. Thursday night opening of Spider-Man hit 15, I believe it was $15.7 million. Might have been 15.4. Anywhere, it's in that neighborhood. That made it the third largest Thursday night opening of the year. Now, that's behind Guardians of the Galaxy, which made 17-something, and Beauty and the Beast, which made 16-something. Spider-Man Homecoming made 15-point-something. Wonder Woman made 11. So you're looking at about a 20%, uh, I'm guessing maybe a 15 to 20% bigger take for that first night for Spider-Man Homecoming than Wonder Woman did. Like I said, Wonder Woman went on to make 103 something million dollars its opening weekend. That's a really good number. I do believe that Spider-Man Homecoming will top that. I think, you know, it's just got too many things going for it. Now, Spider-Man Homecoming, I've talked about this a bit in the last couple of days. Spider-Man Homecoming has a couple of things going against it as well. First of all, this is the third incarnation of Spider-Man in just the last few years. So I'm sure a lot of the audience is going, oh, come on again, another one. Secondly, whereas people knew the name Andrew Garfield and people knew the name Tobey Maguire, nobody's heard of Tom Holland. They will, 
Oh, they will. And a lot of us in the geek circles, we know of him, but most people out there have never heard the name. So you're talking about a franchise that's already been rebooted a couple of times in just the last handful of years. You've got a new star that nobody really knows or recognizes, and he didn't have that big of a role in Civil War. I mean, yeah, we remember his scenes, but he was in two scenes in Civil War. So all those things are going against it. That's why you're not going to see Spider-Man Homecoming make like 180, $190 million opening weekend. I believe Spider-Man Homecoming will have a very respectable, very solid, like $120 million opening weekend in that neighborhood, which will outpace Wonder Woman. Now, the big question is not what will make more money opening weekend. The real question is, what will make more money or which will get more people to come out to see it in the long run? Because Wonder Woman has exceeded its opening weekend. I mean, Wonder Woman has pro- proven to have really good legs. I mean, it has gone and gone and gone and gone with like 50% drop, 40% drop, 30% drop, like really respectable numbers. So the question is going to be, with the word of mouth, will people get their friends to go out and see Spider-Man Homecoming after they've seen it? Will people go back to see it a second and third time like they did with Wonder Woman? That's the big question. So yes, to me, it's an automatic Spider-Man Homecoming will beat Wonder Woman's opening weekend number. I don't think there's much doubt about that. But what I'm not sure about is will it outperform Wonder Woman in the long run? Because Wonder Woman, like I said, has had terrific legs for its box office. Will Spider-Man have the same legs? We're going to have to wait and see. Thanks a lot for the question, man. All right, we move on to the next question. And the next question comes to us from Ryan Clark. And Ryan Clark writes, Ready Player One has been done filming since late last year and is currently in a heavy post-production stage. With the film slated for March of 2018 release date, when do you think we'll get our first footage from the film? Yeah, good question. Now, one of the reasons, actually the main reason I'm super excited about Ready Player One is not because of the book or anything like that. It's because of who's directing it. The greatest director of all time, Steven Spielberg, is directing it. So I'm very excited about that. Now, it doesn't come out for almost a year. However, with a title like Ready Player One, And with the kind of audience and the people who read Ready Player One, and with Comic-Con right around the corner, it would seem to me that Comic-Con would be a really good place. This Comic-Con would be a great opportunity for them to drop a big, you know, a big announcement, a big reveal, a big trailer, a big piece of footage, whatever, to really get people starting to buzz about Ready Player One. Because honestly, I think a lot of people have even forgotten that movie's coming out. I think, a lot, I mean, it's been a while, right? It's been in production and post-production for a long time. I think this Comic-Con would be a great place to do that. So I suspect we're going to see something at Comic-Con. If not, then being a Steven Spielberg film, if not Comic-Con, I honestly don't think we'll probably see anything till like November. Really, I think it'll be that long. Now, even if it's November, so you got December, January, February, March, then you're still talking like four months until the movie comes out. So I think that'll be pretty reasonable. But yeah, I think it'll either be a Comic-Con in a couple of weeks, and if not Comic-Con, could be as late as November. I know I'm dying to see what Steven Spielberg has been cooking with this property. I know a lot of fans. I know I've got a lot of friends who are big fans of the novel, big fans of the book, and they are nervous but excited at the same time to see if Steven Spielberg can do justice to this great story. We're going to find out here pretty soon. Thanks a lot for the question. All right. The next question comes to us from Hampton Sipper, who writes, 
Hey, John, I've been following you for a while and thoroughly enjoy listening to your insight. Well, thank you so much. I wanted to ask your thoughts on the TV show, The Office. I've never heard you talk about it and just wanted to hear your thoughts. Thanks, man, and God bless. The Office, I'll be one of the unpopular people. I think the North American version of The Office with Steve Carell is better than the British version. I know. I know. The cool thing is to say that the British version is better. And I love the British version. I saw the British version before the North American version came out. And if I limited it to the first couple of episodes in the North American version, I would say, yeah, the British version I did to a couple of friends. Say, yeah, the British version is still better, but this North American one's really good. But then the show found its legs. And it is just simply, I think, one of the greatest television shows ever made. I mean, I put it right up there with Seinfeld as far as comedies, TV comedies go. I put it right up there. It's a Hall of Fame show. It's an absolute Hall of Fame show. It's one of those shows, The Office and Parks and Rec, are two shows that I can load up on Netflix or Hulu or whatever and just go, just play roulette, just go, ah, this one, and just hit any episode. And I know I'm going to have a good time for the next 22 minutes. I know I'm going to laugh and I know I'm going to smile and I know I'm going to feel good for the next 22 minutes. And there's really very few, even other comedies that I absolutely love, I can't necessarily do that with. Like I'm a big fan of Modern Family too, but Modern Family is one of those shows I could just at any time pick any one episode and watch it and I'm guaranteed to have a good time. And it's a great show. But shows like The Office, it's so rare. And somehow, some way, Parks and Rec kind of joined it uh, in that upper echelon of really enjoyable shows to me. And, and it's true. Like every once in a while, I'll come home and I may not have a lot of time, but if I got like an hour or 45 minutes to kill, I'll grab a soda out of the fridge, pop on the TV, go to Hulu or Netflix and pick a random episode of The Office and just hit play. And for the next little while, I'm guaranteed to be entertained. It's one of the greatest shows ever. Um, it's unfortunate the final season it had, like they made – such a bonehead, disastrous decision. When after Steve Carell left, some moron at the network went, hey, you know what? Uh, Ed Helms was in that uh, Hangover movie and it was really popular. We should make him the new focus of the show. Make Andy the, the focus of the show now. Oh my God. That was one of the most brutal decisions they ever made. Just brutal. It almost ruined the show. And you can tell about halfway through that season, they realized, oh my God, this was a mistake. And Andy left for a while. And I don't know if he left for a while to go shoot another movie. Or I don't know if he left for a while because the showrunners realized they made a tragic mistake. But that was terrible. Clearly, it should have either been Dwight or it should have been Jim or whatever. They should have become the focus of the show at that point. But instead, Ed Helms is popular because he's in Hangover. Let's do that. Oh, God. And nothing against Ed Helms. I'm just saying the character was... Not somebody that I was looking forward to seeing every week. So, but yeah, other than that, The Office is absolutely brilliant. The series finale was fantastic. And how many times have we seen great TV shows blow their series finale? Like even Seinfeld. Seinfeld completely choked on their series finale. That was brutal. That was awful. A lot of great shows have just brutal series finales. But The Office, even though they had a rough last season, I thought they stuck the landing with their series finale. I thought it was really satisfying. Anyway, thanks a lot. I love talking about The Office. Thanks for bringing that up. All right. Now, the final question of the day comes to us from Kenny Drew, who writes, I have a question about who will get directing credit 
for both the Justice League and the young Han Solo movies, as they seem to be in similar situations. Will both Zack Snyder and Joss Whedon receive directing credit on Justice League? And will Ron Howard and Lord Miller share the credit on Han Solo? Well, let's start with Justice League. With Justice League, I don't think it's that big of, uh, of an issue. Zack Snyder is going to be the director of credit, okay? Zack Snyder did all the principal photography. He shot the whole movie. Joss Whedon is coming up to supervise the post-production and to direct the pickup scenes, to direct the reshoots. Now, once again, remember, these reshoots were always planned. There's nothing to worry about. It's like, they're doing reshoots. Something must be wrong with the movie. No, 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 no. They planned the reshoots a long time before they ever started shooting the movie. This is fine, okay? So Joss Whedon's coming in to shoot that. But most of the lion's share of the movie was done by Zack Snyder. I don't think Warner Brothers has any desire. And really, it's not up to Warner Brothers, but I'll get to that in a second. I don't see any reason why Zack Snyder wouldn't be the director of credit. Unless Zack Snyder comes in and says, man, Joss, you did such a great job. You did some things I wouldn't have thought of. I want to share credit with you. Maybe that'll happen. I don't know. But I think it's pretty safe to say that Zack Snyder will be the director of record for Justice League. And rightfully so. He, I mean, he shot the whole principal photography. Of course he should be. The Lord and Miller and Ron Howard situation becomes a little more tricky. Now, I mentioned a second ago. That with Justice League, it's not actually up to Warner Brothers who gets directing credit. It's not. According to the deal that the film industry has with the DGA, that's the Directors Guild of America, only one body has the power to decide who gets directing credit. And that's the Directors Guild of America. The Directors Guild of America is the one who arbitrates and decides on who gets director credit. Much like the Writers Guild of America, whenever there's a you know conflict or some upheaval or some dispute over who should get writing credit on a movie, it goes to the Writers Guild of America and the Writers Guild of America arbitrates that and they decide who gets credit. Much is the same for the Directors Guild here. So what's going to happen is as of right now, no decision has been made and it's probably going to be a couple of months until the Directors Guild breaches any sort of decision. I have a feeling the Directors Guild is probably going to want to sit back. And then there, when they bring in the parties to discuss, you know, the, the two different sides about who should get directing credit and all that kind of crap. I think one of the things the Directors Guild is going to look at is what was this movie looking like prior to Ron Howard taking over? And they'll say, now, what does the movie actually look like now? And how much difference is there between what this movie was shaping up to be and what this movie is? If the movie still pretty much looks the same, I mean, obviously there's going to be differences, but if the movie still pretty much looks the same, I have a feeling they'll go Lord Miller. If they feel and, and judge that, hey, it's no significantly different from what it was going to be, they may go with Ron Howard. Here's an interesting thing to keep in mind, though. And I'm not suggesting there's any funny business, okay? I'm just putting this out there because it's a fact. You know who sits on the national board of the Directors Guild of America? Ron Howard. <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting there's going to be any tomfoolery. I'm sure they have systems in place and protocols in place to make sure everything's above board and adjudicated properly. But I mean, right now, for all I know, I don't even know that Ron Howard is asking for director's credit. He probably is. Or I don't even know if, you know, Lord Miller still want to be credited directors. They probably do because I believe a lot of money hangs in the balance for that. But yeah, when it comes down to it, a lot of people are saying, oh, Lucasfilm wouldn't do this or Warner Brothers wouldn't do that. It's not up to Lucasfilm. 
And it's not up to Warner Brothers. It's up to the Directors Guild of America. They will decide. And don't expect to hear any sort of decision on the Han Solo movie for months. I mean, months. It's going to be a while before there's any decision. Because like I said, I have a feeling they're going to want to see what this movie, how it turns out, and how it differs from the way it was going. As far as the Justice League thing goes... I think we're going to hear pretty soon. Like, I, I haven't heard anything to even suggest that Zack Snyder isn't the director of record. I don't see any reason why the Directors Guild of America would overturn that. I don't see anybody advocating for that. I don't see anybody becoming an applicant for that. Zack Snyder is going to be the director of record for Justice League. Now, how much, you know, how different will Joss Whedon's version of it be? Well, no one will ever know except Joss Whedon and the studio and Zack Snyder. But I think as far as on the record goes, it's going to be Zack Snyder. All right, guys, that'll do it for me for this installment of the John Campy Podcast. Hey, listen, I mentioned that Comic-Con is right around the corner. Are you going to Comic-Con or do you live in the San Diego area? Guess what? I am once again holding my annual Masters of the Web panel. It's on Thursday at 11 a.m. in room 7AB. That's the Thursday of Comic-Con at 7 a.m. in room 7A or 11 a.m. in room 7AB. I can tell you right now that some of the people that are joining me is the wonderful Trisha Hirschberger is going to be joining me. Christian Harloff is going to be joining me. And of course, my partner in crime, John Schnepp, is going to be on that panel as well. So, and I'm going to have a couple other names as well, but make sure you guys come on down. Come and join us. Meet us. We're going to take pictures with everybody after the panel and everything too. So make sure you come down and join us. I also want to remind you guys, I love using the app Share the Meal. No better way to quickly, easily, and inexpensively change the world for a kid. You open up the app, you hit the button, share the meal, and you just donated $3.50, which actually feeds a hungry kid for a week. I know deep down all of us want to do something to make the world a better place for somebody. There's no easier way than the app Share the Meal. I really want to encourage you, download it from the iOS store or the Apple Play store. Get it on your phone. It's free to use. Then donate a little bit of money and you will feel like a million. I think you'll get addicted to using it because I know I have. Anyway, guys, don't forget, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Make sure you're following me on Facebook and Twitter, simply at John Campia. And that'll do it for me, guys. So until next time, bye-bye.